plans and proposals for the taxation of the digital economy may leave a lot of questions unanswered, but one thing is for sure. Tax professionals with all kinds of specialties sure do love talking about it, and we at Cross Border Solutions love to provide a platform and a little expertise of our own. In 2021 alone, we've had several discussions already. Take Fiona Show episode 82 from just a few weeks ago, titled The OECD Economic Impact Assessment in Pillar 1, with Dr. Lorraine Eden, a professor emerita of management in the Mays Business School of Texas A&M University, transfer pricing author of books and articles for esteemed tax publications. What I'm saying is, it looks like there aren't very many proposals, but in fact, there are. And there are discrete, different proposals. One is this amount A proposal, then there's amount B, both of those in Pillar 1. Pillar 2 has a global minimum tax, and then it has, like I think, four other separate proposals that have to do with whether source jurisdictions have the right to tax income that is in their jurisdictions. There's also questions that have to do with the definition of permanent establishment and whether a permanent establishment, in other words, do you have effective nexus, could be broadened. We haven't even talked about the fact that the United Nations has also weighed into this this summer with a new proposal for a change in the UN tax convention to include a proposal which could call 12B which would allow the taxing of automated digital services in market jurisdiction countries, in effect creating a new taxable nexus there. Then, of course, we had cross-border solutions own Mimi Song talking about her own article on digital taxation. Well, it definitely is. It's an allocation of the residual profits, right? And so it challenges this concept of the arm's length principle, which is every entity that is involved in an intercompany transaction is earning a return in in line with their functions and assets and risks, right? In in line with their their activities. Now, the arm's length principle is the foundation of transfer pricing. So when we start talking about this pillar one amount A and the allocation of residual profits, the problem is it's very formulaic, right? And so at least based on the blueprint as it exists today, because it's so formulaic, what this does is it creates um, a divergence perhaps from the arm's length principle and creates an environment of complexity where now companies that are appropriately applying the arm's length principle and ensuring that the prices charged between related parties are based on third-party market conditions can now potentially be subject to double taxation under this amount A calculation. And what do you know? We're at it again. This time we're talking to one of Law 360's transfer pricing writers, Alex Parker, about the OECD's proposals and how the Biden administration will likely respond to them. Alex Parker, of course, is no stranger to The Fiona Show. Last year, right as the pandemic was gripping the globe, Alex came on the show to discuss the future of country-by-country reports. Cross-Border Solutions Chief Economist Mimi Song is here to dive into the digital economy with Alex, which is particularly exciting, given they've both been busy writing on the subject. In speaking of being a trusted expert in a very complex field, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're placing three CPE code words throughout the course of this show. Send all three to The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's The Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we will respond with your certificate. Now, without further ado, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Changes 
is in the air in Taiwan for transfer pricing, that is. The Taiwan Ministry of Finance has issued new transfer pricing regulations. The updated rules include adoption of some of the 2017 OECD guidelines and BEPS action plans, the keyword being some. The real point of interest, though, is its focus on intangible transactions, specifically actions 8 through 10. Taiwan has adopted DEMPA functions for assessment of intangible transactions. In case you need a refresher, DEMPA stands for Development, Enhancement, Maintenance, Protection, and Exploitation. Functions aren't the only thing seeing a changeup when it comes to intangible transactions. So is the method. The guidance includes the income method also known as the discounted cash flow method as an additional approach for valuing intangible transactions. Taxpayers also get a thumbs up for use of a single comparable when determining the comparable uncontrolled price for all three transaction-based methods. And this wouldn't be a proper guidance without mention of the penalties. In this case, a penalty is applicable when an entity doesn't reveal the necessary related party transactions and is subsequently adjusted. The penalty will be applied if the taxpayer meets the following requirements. The adjusted taxable income is 1.5% or more of the annual net revenue and 5% or more of the final taxable income. The damage, a penalty up to three times the adjusted tax amount. Transfer pricing scrutiny is heating up faster than a day in Bangkok. The Thai Revenue Department published two director general notifications, which buckled down on related party transactions. The first notification mandates online submission for controlled transactions and related party information. The second notification, number 400, irons out OECD-aligned transfer pricing concepts. We're talking arm's length range, approved methods, comparability, and income adjustments, and applies to financial years beginning on or or after January 1st, 2021. The recently published notifications are practically parallel to the June 2019 draft version with some slight changes. The finalized version rules that compensation for service transactions performed primarily for the benefit of shareholders, like reporting requirements and investor relations, should be recognized as independent compensation. In addition, DEMPA functions, this is a vocabulary quiz from before, must be utilized for comparability analysis. The takeaway, the revenue department isn't playing around when it comes to transfer pricing compliance. Listen up, Danish taxpayers. The Danish parliament has issued new rules around transfer pricing submission deadlines. The transfer pricing documentation, both master and local file, is now required 60 days from the tax return deadline and applies to income years beginning on or after January 1st, 2021. Previously, transfer pricing documentation was only required to be submitted upon request. What happens if you fail to submit on time? You guessed it, penalties. Oh, and risk of discretionary assessments, eek. Penalties start at 250,000 Danish krona, approximately 41,000 US dollars, and apply to each income year and entity. There's also talk of daily penalties until documentation is received by the tax authority. My advice, Denmark your calendar. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. 
Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And without further ado, I'm going to hand things off to Cross-Border Solutions' own chief economist, Mimi Song, so we can speak a little bit more in depth on this subject. Mimi, the floor is yours. Alex, it's really nice to meet you virtually. So I really appreciate your time here. Yep. Where are you actually based or where are you located? Where's home base? I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, which is right, right outside of D.C., so... I've been working out of there for the past, whatever it's been, year now. Can you believe it? It's been a year. Yeah. <laughs> I used to live in Silver Spring, Maryland, but this was back in, you know, grammar school days, like middle school, high school. Oh, yeah. Which, I, which high school? So I, I went to Richard Montgomery, but that's in Gaithersburg. But I lived in the JF Kennedy, was it Silverbrook? Silverbrook High School? Is that what it was called? Or Springbrook, so. Springbrook. That's yeah. what it was called. Springbrook, yes. We lived in that area. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm actually te- technically in Wheaton, but, you know, I say Silver Spring because it's... Easier for people to identify? The, the same area, and there, there aren't technically lines, so I imagine it's changed a lot. Yeah, no, I, I probably, probably. I mean, especially with what's happening with the pandemic, how are things in your neck of the woods? You know, it's funny. If you walked around, things would seem normal, but... Mm-hmm. They're obviously not. The restaurants are mostly closed for indoor seating. And I've been doing a lot of hiking and outdoor activities, even during the winter, just to get out. People are are getting by. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that there's this idea of COVID fatigue? I've heard that that's a thing, right? People are feeling really tired. Yeah. I think something about the new year mm-hmm. and you know, may- maybe the election or something finally being over. But people are still, you, you look around and you see people outside who are still complying with the masks and, you know, keeping distance and everything. But just in conversations, you hear a lot of people who say they're just so ready for this to be over. Yeah. It's like, we're so close and yet we're so far away, right? It's at the, at right. the finish line. We don't want to necessarily fumble, you know? So how have you found working at home these last, well, over the past year? Have you had a lot of challenges yourself personally? Yeah, it's been interesting. I did a decent amount of re- remote work before, so it's not it wasn't okay. totally new to me. Well, that's good. Part of my job that I enjoyed was, you know, going to tax conferences, meeting the people who were there, kind of getting a sense of what everyone was talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously harder to do from home. I've been missing out on that. On the other hand, you know, I've kind of got the whole routine down now. <laughs> of working from home and getting up every morning and being ready for work. Yeah. Have you attended any of these virtual online seminars or, or yeah, webinars? Yeah, I've done a okay. bunch of them. Okay. Uh, but it's not the same. No. But <laughs> <laughs> Like sometimes they try and do like little, like they'll have like an, a virtual lobby or something, but mm-hmm. just having the in-between sessions where you talk to people and that kind of stuff is very different. 
Right. It's not like you can just cozy up next to someone with a cup of coffee and say, how's your day going? Right. right. <laughs> well, appreciate your time once again, Alex. Absolutely. I think- Thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, no, we, we're excited about your article. And I want to talk a little bit about what you had put out there in terms of the OECD's proposals for digital tax. I think your headline was, you know, Biden guilty plan could pull us closer to OECD standard, right? Definitely draws you in here. So (laughs) let's first define real quick, what exactly is pillar one and pillar two, right? If we can sort of level set an understanding for whoever's listening right now. Right. Yeah. I'll try and come up with as brief summaries as I can. I I could go on for you know, the whole time. As can we all about pillar one and pillar two. (laughs) So So they are both part of an OECD project to try and address issues that are out there about taxes and the online economy that, Mm -hmm. you know, people have been talking about for several years and there've been movements to try and capture better this kind of income that people feel is sort of slipping through the cracks It was prompted by the digital service taxes, which several countries have either adopted or are sort of looking at that are just kind of blunt instruments to try and get to that income. It's it's just sort of a revenue tax. The idea was that countries that could come together at the OECD and find some way to find agreement on this issue. Mm -hmm. Pillar one is the policy that is kind of trying to address the whole issue of companies that can earn income, earn a profit remotely without having a traditional physical presence in a jurisdiction. The issue is that the U.S. was very against anything which specifically targets those kinds of industries, because Mm -hmm. obviously the U.S. is a very robust uh, tech sector. So there was this idea that this is a sort of everyone is just trying to sort of grab the U.S. revenue here. Sure. And so what it would do is basically... It would allow countries to tax a certain amount of income from companies that are doing business in their market, regardless of whether or not they are physically present there. And it would happen through some kind of formula that would ultimately need to be worked into existing tax treaties. And the basic idea of it is that if companies are especially profitable, that's income that would be considered sort of intangible income, and that's what would be divided up. I think all of those elements are important to note, right? It's focused on intangible taxation, right? Focused on digital businesses. And there was a little bit of a target on the U.S.'s back, if you will, or U.S. multinationals back. And this relates to the U.S. sentiment of things, right? But what about Pillar 2? Pillar 2. So Pillar 2 is a little bit simpler to understand. It's basically a global minimum tax, and it is was somewhat inspired by the U.S. tax on guilty. That's global, intangible, low-taxed income that was part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act from 2017. Mm-hmm. And so this is a policy that you know countries would adopt together. It, it would just need to be a national law but for, for these different countries, but because they'd all be doing it at the same time, there would be kind of a consensus. The policy just basically says, if I have a company that's you know based in my jurisdiction and it's earning income abroad and that income is not being taxed below a certain level, which they haven't agreed on yet, but like say it's only, they have an effective tax rate of say 5%, mm-hmm. 
this law would just say we get to immediately tax you on this and sort of bring some of that income back. That's you know a similar thing. Guilty has some some differences, but as soon as the U.S. passed guilty, European countries were kind of interested in this idea. The idea is sort of that it would serve as a disincentive for companies to go into take income so and put it in offshore intangible right. assets, right? Or you know, in, in tax haven. Mm-hmm. And the reason these two policies are being grouped together is it's a little bit mysterious. The basic idea is that, you know, these both relate to, like you said, intangible income. Right. I kind of see it as like on the front end and the back end, you know, like hmm. in the one sense, the, the issue is that the transaction itself is happening in this kind of digital online sphere. And then on the other hand, you have the problem that the income is earned through intangible patents, trademarks, things like that, that are developed presumably at the headquarters, but then can be moved to low-tax jurisdictions so the, the income sort of ends up there. Right. So there was a kind of a sense of a grand bargain that countries could agree to these two policies together. And it would satisfy both countries like France that are very concerned about companies using their market. Then you have companies like Germany that are more exporting and they're more thinking in terms of like, what's going to happen? We want to be able to keep exporting and generate a certain amount of revenue. So that's the the basic gist of it. Got it. You know, and I think your point is well taken. Guilty is sort of part of the inspiration behind a global minimum tax or behind pillar two. But there clearly there's still a lot of questions about that, right? And and it's unclear. I think guilty right now has an effective tax rate of ten and a half percent or something to that effect. And that but that's divergent from the pillar two preliminary framework. Well they they haven't come to an agreement on the rate that would be the amount, minimum yeah. rate. They're talking about in that range, maybe a little bit higher. If you want me to talk about the differences between guilty and pillar two. Absolutely. I think that might be very important, right? right? You know, what are some of these differences between guilty and pillar two? Because if guilty were and pillar two were exactly aligned, the U.S. would not have to do or change anything necessarily, right? And and that's the big issue. They're, They're trying to, in a tricky language of diplomacy, kind of work around that issue that the U.S. thing may be different, but they want it to be considered in compliance with this overall regime. Guilty looks at the income that is aggregated. So it it basically Mm -hmm. just looks at all foreign income. There's a few exceptions with this, but looks at all of your tangible, depreciable, tangible property. And then it looks at returns above 10% on that. The idea being that, you know, if if you're earning extraordinarily large income off of your tangible income, that's probably intangible income. So at the time, there was a lot of debate about whether it would make more sense to have a policy that looked at this in every jurisdiction. And Democrats were very critical of the bill, saying that allowing it to be aggregated allows companies to get away with too much profit shifting, even with this policy. They haven't decided yet at the OECD whether they want it to be country by country or aggregated. And it seems like there's a little bit of a tilt towards country by country. 
and interrupting very briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is residual, as in amount A of the OECD's Pillar 1 proposal represents a residual profit split between countries. And returning to our conversation. Yeah, I think you had indicated that Biden himself had criticized companies like Amazon, right? right? And we all know this for having really low effective tax rates and and sort of focusing that on the fact that perhaps these are related to guilty loopholes, right? Because guilty was intended to be able to capture some of that intangible income, right? you know? And so are there any plans right now you think within Biden's tax plan to remedy these loopholes? You know, at this point, it's hard to say, but it's definitely something people are talking about because Democrats won in Georgia and they have control over the you know, Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Mm -hmm. Means Committee, they are definitely starting to look at implementing the Biden campaign proposals, and this was one of them. The other thing that they have talked about is the, what's called QBI, what they call Qualified Business Asset Investment. That is a measurement of tangible property, depreciable tangible property that's offshore. And again, this is a way that they sort of used as a proxy for intangible income, income earned through valuable intangible assets, especially patents, copyrights. I read somewhere that an iPhone has 250 patents in it. Wow. So that these are obviously very, very valuable. And then some of them are mm-hmm. more nebulous concepts, but the, the idea is it's too hard to try and define all of those and make sure that we're capturing all of it. So it's better to use a, a proxy like this But what Democrats and some other commentators have said is that because the measurement is a return off of tangible property, so the more tangible property you have offshore, the smaller that return is going to be. So it actually gives you an incentive to have more tangible property outside, which might be facilities, workers. So they have also talked about getting rid of that deduction so that guilty would just be more of a flat minimum tax. It's a 50% deduction today. So effectively, it's 10.5% instead of the 21% corporate rate. You're right. That is the guilty deduction the guilty. That, that creates yeah. a lower rate. But the, the deduction I was talking about, I think Biden has talked about lowering that too, so that it would come out to a 21% rate. And then mm-hmm. he would also raise the corporate rate. So it still would be a somewhat lower rate than the corporate rate. His policy would be 28%. But they also want to take out this special deduction that you get for the amount of tangible property that's that's offshore. Okay. The idea being that you shouldn't give an incentive to move American jobs overseas. And what's interesting about that is that is also something the OECD is looking at. Because again, the, the idea is that we're mainly trying to get intangible income. And so this may be a way that Biden would move it further away from what the OECD is looking at. Mm-hmm. But it, on the issue of country by country, they, you know, if they're able to pass this policy, it would actually make it a little bit easier at the OECD to sync everything together. Generally speaking, you, you had indicated that Guilty received a far more favorable reception, right, in Europe, right? right? And so... Why exactly is that? Why why are Europeans much more favorable on guilty? Well, besides the fact that they're not the ones subject to the tax. But. Right. <laughs> well, I guess it's interesting. Like the only way you would know about guilty in the U.S. is if you're someone who's paying it, which, you know, 
there, mm-hmm. it, it, there have been complaints that it's covering a lot more than just intended yeah, to it, it, that it's hitting a lot of legitimate income earned abroad that's not been profit shifted or anything else that's like sort of nefarious or the people who've criticized the TCGA from the beginning. So in Europe, it was sort of a new idea because there had been all of this talk about, you know, income that's escaping the clutches of the tax revenue. It was just kind of this new idea of a way to sort of capture it. And, you know, they've had CFC, uh, Controlled Foreign Corporation, rules in Europe. But I think a rule like this is a little bit different and more powerful. And there's also the dynamic in Europe that it's kind of interesting. You have a lot of people who are talking about, you know, we need to get this income, stop letting companies get away with tax avoidance. On the other hand, they pass laws or or tax regimes that try to attract investment. And Mm -hmm. it almost seems like sort of like a split personality sometimes that it's like, on the one hand, we're really desperate to get new investment. On the other hand, we really don't like it when you end up paying a low effective tax rate because this would be a policy that everyone looks at sort of at once. That is part of the appeal to it. There would also be the tax on base eroding payments that is actually a little bit similar to the USB base erosion and anti-abuse tax that would target. It's sort of supposed to work the other way that if there is a payment that is going into a jurisdiction that has a low tax rate or does not have a pillar two rule, you get to reduce some of the deduction for that payment. So you get to basically tax it. The idea being that you would want a way to like disincentivize companies from just going into a haven jurisdiction that just doesn't pass any of these rules. So given where we currently stand with all of these complex tax rules, right? How are Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 faring right now? I mean, based on what you've been hearing, what you've been seeing? It's really a big question mark right now. And it's been this kind of long saga that, well, if you really want to trace it back, it goes all the way back to 2013. But it, I, I see it as going back to 2017 and has kind of been going up and down. The U.S. has been at the center of it. It seemed like they were a major driver of the, the deal. And it seemed like they were kind of almost behind the proposal on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. And then kind of out of the blue, or at least it it seemed like it was kind of out of the blue, Secretary Mnuchin at the end of 2019 sent a letter saying, we feel like this is diverging too much from the the traditional arm's length standard, the sort of transfer pricing principles that have been longstanding. We think this should only be considered as a safe harbor, which people called it like optional taxation. None of the other countries like that, and they've been more or less at loggerhead since then. And the pandemic pretty much kind of froze everything. They're still doing discussions. Well, they're still targeting the guidelines to be issued or the framework to be more fleshed out by what June of 2021, right? Yes, but that was not the, the original deadline mm-hmm. was supposed to be the end of 2020. That was the deadline set by the G20 when they initially asked the OECD to do this. In October, they said, okay, we're, we're not going to be able to, to finish this by then, but we think we've got enough momentum. We will be able to finish it by mid-2021. And there's kind of a sense that with the new administration in, it will kind of maybe rejuvenate mm-hmm. things and maybe there'll be some new ideas. 
but you still just have a lot of outstanding questions, technical questions that go beyond just the issue with the U.S. Obviously, we already talked about the issue with country by country. There are a lot of definitional questions in amount right. A, like, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, in pillar one. Like the nexus, right? What, a, what, what actually one. constitutes a taxable establishment, right? So Right. There's a fear that companies are going to end up having to sort of register for this tax in every country they do business in, and maybe even some that they don't, but you can plausibly claim that they have some sort of internet presence there. And then they may not end up actually paying very much tax. And so that's why they were considering these plus factors. And I actually offhand don't remember what the plus factors are, but they're things beyond just a digital presence that would trigger being considered a nexus. I was just going to say one other thing. There's a lot of questions of what kind of activities will be exempt from this. Industries like mining and extractive, it doesn't really seem like they are part of this problem of sort of digital economy. But as soon as you start making exceptions, it gets very weird and lots of seemingly arbitrary uh, differences. And so that's been a major design. And then there's lots of questions about Pillar 2 and how it's going to work. So resolving these technical issues while also doing diplomacy at the at the same time is yes i mean uh, over 130 tr- countries coming together to try to reach a, a type of consensus here right and and that's a major part of the story too is that when the OECD did the beps project a couple of years ago it was only mm-hmm. it was basically just the OECD members however many there are 20 something or 30 maybe but they were criticized for not taking into account developing countries. And so this time they, it's called the inclusive framework has, I think actually close to 140 members now, which includes, you know, a lot of countries from Africa, from South America that feel like they're on the losing end of the, the current system. And they've said that they, the entire inclusive framework needs to sign off on this agreement before it's finalized. That, you know, also affects what they can, you know, consider the policies they're looking at. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So you said something interesting before, how it it felt like the U.S. was driving the Pillar 1, Pillar 2 initiatives, and then all of a sudden, perhaps it it felt like they just fell off the map, so to speak. And because there was perhaps this notion that the framework of Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 was challenging the arm's length principle. Do you agree with that? Do you think that it actually does challenge the arm's length principle? 
there, there are many practitioners that, that would say yes, right? So, Well, in, in a sense, by definition, it does. That I mean, it, it is a, a system that's different. And before, what officials were saying, including U.S. officials, was that the arm's length standard has worked for 100 years. We're not proposing that we need to change it, but we, we do recognize that in this one area of intangible income, the system has trouble recognizing some of the assets that can be generated in a market through an online relationship. And we think we need to kind of do a little band-aid on that that uses a formula to approximate what that income would be. Which, okay, maybe, maybe that makes sense in a kind of academic way. But when people started looking at this, they, they did not buy the, you know, <laughs> small band-aid thing at all. People looked at it and they said, this, you know, is a new, a whole new way of defining and collecting income. It is more tilted towards a destination-based system. It, you know, kind of recognizes that markets have a, a sort of claim that goes beyond maybe what on the other end, the sort of residence jurisdictions. And it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a formulary system. It's basic. And so that's one of the big fears is that once you enact this a little bit, it's going to go further. Sure. Whether I agree with that, I'm, I'm not sure. But one thing that was interesting, we interviewed Chip Harder, who was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Tax Policy and was one of the people who was involved in this discussion what he said is when you're in these negotiations, you realize you just have so many market jurisdictions that feel like they're, they're not getting their, their fair share that regardless of what you think about it, it, it's going to happen sooner or later that destination countries are going to get more income. And the only question is how. And so when you look at it that way, it's sort of like, well, okay, we could we could do this in a way that's very disorganized and not very principled, or we can try and do it in a way that has some principles is, is sort of, I think, the way they're looking at it. I think whether or not it's based on the arm's length principle or a formulaic-based approach, right, which definitionally, to your point, a formulaic-based approach is not the same as an arm's length approach, right? So that's, I think, the deviation between the two. Like It's the same way that Brazil, and I don't know how familiar you are with Brazil's right. regime, but okay, they had a formulaic-based approach to transfer pricing calculations, and yet they used to continuously make the statement that they follow the arm's length principle, even though it was formulaic, whereas the rest of the world basically said, no, that's the formula. It's not, <laughs> it's not based on the arm's length principle, right? So... Like some other countries do too, they just sort of deem it. They just kind of say, well, this much is, we, we just deem that this is the arm's length return, yep. regardless of whether or not it is. And it just over, it just simplifies it. It, it oversimplifies it. Uh, that's right. Even though the idea of the arm's length principle, it's not a difficult concept in that you're, you're pricing transaction services, goods at a price, you know, based on market prices, right? But in practice, you know, application and analyzing that, that's, it's not always, it's not always easy to apply. So, so going back to, you know, pillar two, what are some of the pillar two initiatives that are still being negotiated? There are a lot of them. (laughs) Okay. Like I said, the country by country issue hasn't been worked out. Another big issue, Mm -hmm. I may be a little fuzzy on some of the details of this, but I, I mentioned before that there's the 
the tax on base eroding payments. And then you have the, the main tax, which they call the income inclusion rule. So there's a question of when those two things overlap, when you have a subsidiary that is both a subsidiary, but it's also a parent organization of subsidiaries, which rule should overrule the other one? And that is another thing where developing countries are pushing hard to have it be that the base eroding payment rule would get primacy because it's a rule that would tend to favor not the residence country, but the source country, the country that does not have the sort of parent organization. I don't know if that all made sense, what I said, but... Yes, so most of those developing countries, they want the rule that's basically going to be more favorable to them, right? Based on the fact that, hey, this should be categorized as base eroding payment and therefore subject to taxation in my local country, as opposed to being included as part of the income for the parent company's jurisdiction, right? Where perhaps they're going to get a foreign tax credit or something along those lines for... (laughs) Yes, Interrupting once again very briefly for our second CPE code word. That code word is Germany, as in one of the biggest fans of Guilty as one of Europe's leading exporters. Germany is our second CPE code word. And back to our conversation. There used to be kind of a divide with developing countries about this rule because some some countries were really enthusiastic about it because Mm -hmm. they said they face a lot of pressure to offer tax incentives for companies to invest. Mm-hmm. this would essentially put a floor on that. And of course, whether or not it does that depends on some of the design details, including whether you base it on a return for tangible property. Because if you did that, then it wouldn't really affect actual investments of you know equipment or mines or oil, that, that kind of thing. On the other hand, I think some countries are wary of that because they think they don't want to stop the race to the bottom. They think they're they're winning the race to the bottom. The African Union made a statement at one of the consultations recently that it should be set at a 20% rate, which that's probably outside of what they're considering. Hmm. But it was just kind of interesting to me that they were being a little more aggressive about saying this is what we think the rate should be. That may be something they're debating too right now. Yeah. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see how 140 different countries are going to come together to figure out how to how to make this work, right? So <laughs> Yeah, no. And it's possible they won't. It's possible that this project is just not going to work out and that digital service taxes will just be a fact of life for a while. Mm-hmm. There's obviously a lot of pressure to work something out and not just I think because of the digital service taxes, but also because there's a sense of, you know, if this doesn't work out, how much are countries going to follow the OECD standards in general? Right. And is this just going to be a slow breakdown of the whole system? Well, I mean, I think the OECD is still looked on as a think tank, you know, a policymaking body that can really set forth some reasonable guidelines and educational material for all these jurisdictions. So, so the challenge I think becomes when they're actually ratifying these guidelines into their local legislation. And to the extent that they are modifying the language and because law is always open to interpretation in some ways. Right. So, Right. That's always an issue. I think you saw that a little bit with the BEPS project where Mm -hmm. you had very precise language that was in their guidance, but it countries might have sort of taken it and and used it in their own way. And then, of course, the 
the U.S. too would need to. It, it's a little unclear whether they would need to adopt new legislation. I think the assumption is they probably would, but it's almost a moot point because they would also have to pass treaty changes. So they would need to get 67 votes in the Senate, which obviously is very hard to do. Yeah. So speaking on that point right there, Alex, you know, from the U.S. perspective, right, to your point, pillar two, the design is actually similar to the intention of the guilty. But let's talk about how these are actually different, because then the U.S. needs to also get this an appropriate number of votes to be able to have the tax reform in line with the OECD's proposal too. What are the things that they are potentially going to have to change? In some ways, guilty is harsher than what the OECD is considering Hmm. because guilty does not allow you to carry forward tax credits or carry forward losses and what the OECD is considering would. So it's a little more fluid and flexible that way. Okay. Obviously, the I think the country by country would be the biggest thing. Also, whatever would be different with the tax rate if if they did a similar proposal. And there is talk of just doing kind of like a grandfathering of the U.S. system and just saying, okay, U.S., you're you're okay because you're the one who you came up with this idea in the first place, and we're just fitting you into the new system. But then that always becomes controversial because other countries are thinking, why, why does the U.S. always get a pass? But the, the important thing to understand is why this matters. The fear is that if the U.S. does not have a regime that's considered compliant with Pillar 2, this will mean that companies may be subject to the sort of retaliatory taxes mm-hmm. that are really designed for like if you're a tax haven, which I don't think people are going to consider the U.S. to be a tax haven, but it would be how the rule would be applied. So there's some sense of like maybe the U.S. doesn't need to match it exactly if it's close enough. And maybe if the U.S. regime is actually harsher than the OECD regime, then you could claim like it doesn't need an exemption then because it's actually it's just going further. More strict, right? It's taking the baseline and then just applying more rigidity to that. Right. But what's interesting is when they do these discussions, there's always kind of a sense that like, you just try and work around Congress because Treasury cannot bind Congress to any sort of plan. And Congress is not likely to pass some new rule just because the OECD says to. Right. We're a very uh, nationalistic country. I guess. <laughs> but there are some changes that companies would maybe like to see in guilty. I'm sure you're aware of the, the problem with the foreign tax credit limitations Mm-hmm. on guilty and the fact that it in some cases goes way higher than the than the 10.5 or the 13.125% that it was supposed to and you have the other issues with the you know the lack of flexibility that became a big problem in the last year because all of a sudden all these companies were having losses right and so there's a sense that maybe you could do a bargain and sort of this is what, when I spoke to Chip Harder about it, he kind of suggested this, that you look at country by country, you look at the OECD system, which would not have those foreign tax credit issues, would only just tax the difference between whatever the minimum rate is and the lower rate that is happening abroad. And maybe consider some of the flexibility with net operating losses. And I think some companies, maybe who otherwise just would not be in favor of country by country might be 
open to that idea. On the other hand, when you talk to the people who were involved in passing the TCGA, they say that the reason they did not end up doing country by country is because it requires a lot of administrative Burden. work. And it doesn't even necessarily create that much more revenue for the U.S. In some cases, it may create revenue in other countries because you all of a sudden have this incentive to manage your effective tax rate in every single jurisdiction. So it could be a very onerous rule just based on what some people have told me. Right. But, you know, this kind of goes to, I think, part of the heart of the challenge when it comes to the application of either Pillar 1 or or Pillar 2, which is that viewpoint, Alex, it's it's such a unilateral viewpoint, right? I mean, you know, the U.S. saying, hey, it's burden for multinationals to look at it on a country by country basis. But think about the counterparties to that transaction. Each of them also are are now looking at that piece of it and saying, no, but I want to see how that really breaks down, right? Like, I want to see how that impacts me locally too. Right. Yeah, it reminds me when the check the box thing happened 20 years mm-hmm. ago. I was not actually covering this then, but in the late 90s, it came up that people would say that this is, the U.S. is trying to be the tax authority of the world Mm. in that case. And it had to do with whether, you know, you have passive income that's earned in one jurisdiction from another jurisdiction, but they're both foreign jurisdictions. And in this case, it's kind of similar that does the U.S. care about base erosion everywhere or is it just base erosion when it is happening out of the U.S.? Yep. (laughs) That's a great question. And I think one that, you know, perhaps we don't necessarily want to answer, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but right. it's funny, that check the box approach. When the TCJ came out, there are multinationals who moved into that structure too, Alex, in response to the TCJA and the, the beat tax. Uh, so it, Interesting. it had some implications there. Yeah, it's, I will tell you, no matter what type of tax reform happens or no matter what type of global taxation system we go into, multinationals have smart people. And so they're going to want to make sure that their global presence is structured in a way that makes the most business sense. So, you know, I, I, I think that this idea or the concept of tax morality, which seemed to be a big focus of the inclusive framework, that's going to have to play a bigger role. Like tax authorities are going to have to do a little bit better on the PR side to make sure that taxpayers are going to want to ultimately figure out how to pay their fair share of taxable income. Right. The When you say tax morality, you mean like the sense of like a public obligation? Yes. So. Yes. To, to pay their fair share of taxes, right? Or what That's, they deem to be a fair share. Right. And interrupting one final time for our third and last CPE code word, and that code word is non-compliant, as in if the U.S. is considered non-compliant in Pillar 2, it could result in retaliatory taxes against U.S. business. Again, our third and final CPE code word is non-compliant. Returning to our conversation. It can be very difficult to sort of understand, like, not only what is the letter of the law, but what is the spirit of the law. Yeah. Exactly. And then the question will go to what's fair, right? And who determines what's fair? So, and that's sort of where we stand today. Yes. Yep. 
everything's very subjective. And just to provide a summary, also a slight update as things have changed since we recorded this conversation. Pillar one and pillar two are the OECD's proposals for global digital taxes. Pillar one taxes digital companies in two ways. There's amount A, a residual profit split between countries that benefits businesses. And amount B, which is based on routine return for marketing and distribution taking place in a country physically. Pillar two is essentially a global minimum tax of 12.5% was partially inspired by guilty. Guilty was enacted as part of the U.S. Tax and Jobs Act of 2017. It was meant to target income earned from intangible assets and jurisdictions with low tax rates, resulting in an effective global minimum 10.5% tax rate for American companies earning intangible income abroad. Following a campaign rife with criticism of corporate tax loopholes, the Biden administration is looking to make guilty less flexible by calculating the tax on a per country business while backing a true minimum tax on all foreign earnings and raising overall corporate tax rates to 28%. Guilty itself is a big hit in Europe, especially in countries like Germany, for how it helped form ideas on how to update the global tax system at this stage of the digitalization of the global economy. Returning to the OECD pillars one and two, the Trump administration and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin came out in strong opposition to pillar one, which critics describe as a radical departure from the arm's length principle into what gets called formulary apportionment. But with changing administrations comes definitive policy change. In fact, between this recording and press time, the new U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen announced that the U.S. will no longer require any coordinated Pillar 1 update to international tax and transfer pricing rules be drafted as a safe harbor. On the surface, it still looks like there's more momentum behind Pillar 2. And on paper, there's a lot of overlap between what Guilty does and what Pillar 2 wants to do. The problem is it could open U.S. businesses to retaliatory taxes if the U.S. is considered non-compliant with Pillar 2. See how many CPE code words I use there? Merging the systems is complicated, but President Biden has proposed eliminating the guilty deduction for depreciable tangible assets, claiming it encourages companies to offshore jobs or facilities. Now on with the show. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know, Oh, wait, wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. 
thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today and with Mimi. This has been a, a really insightful discussion. Now, it's time for my favorite part of the show, which we call What We Want to Know. It's this rapid-fire round of questions. We ask one expert in the hot seat, and today, Alex, that is you. And we are going to fire a rapid round of questions your way. Always question one, are you ready? I am ready. Excellent. What has been the most fascinating transfer pricing story you've covered and why? Oh, boy. Take your time. There are so many. One that sticks out in my mind is I wrote a little bit about the Amazon case that was a few years ago. And I I wasn't the main reporter on the case, so I I don't have all the details right. And I'm just saying that so that with with the caveat that I might not be getting it perfectly, but Sure. Was, the issue was the useful life of the Amazon brand. And that kind of gave me a chance to, to write about sort of brands and how you would judge them. And Amazon was actually arguing that their brand was not so valuable, which seemed counterintuitive to people. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That's right. That's right. Now, it being pandemic, I have one of these, especially I think it's something we might all think about now that we're sharing all of our workspace with our home space. But what is a go-to guilty pleasure snack for you? <laughs> I keep several boxes of double stuff Oreos in my closet. <laughs> Excellent. Now, the reason it's in the closet is that's supposed to be <laughs> like a kind of harder place to get it. Finish this sentence. In speaking of pandemic, the pandemic has taught me that. The pandemic has taught me to give myself a break as often as I can, and also to not sweat little worries that used to consume me. When there's a global catastrophe going on, you stop worrying about a lot of stuff that you used to, and then you're kind of like, why was I worrying about that stuff in the first place? So, What is one transfer pricing story that you'd love to break? You know, the, the stories that I really like are not maybe necessarily the breaking news one day, but sort of the, the little detail that people didn't realize mattered. If I can, you know, in this OECD discussion, figure out what people are going to be talking about before they're talking about it is sort of my goal. What is a common mistake you see multinationals making again and again. And if you could name names and give specifics so that, you know, legal will have the biggest problem. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Well, I said this before, I think on the show last time, that sometimes I think companies are more reactive than proactive and right. they respond to like a bad headline or something that instead of maybe thinking ahead and having a standard they can point to when something does become you know, a a problem. I would say that's a mistake. Yeah, and I would too. Uh, We have to wrap up for now, but we want to thank Alex Parker for being with us on today's show. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. While you're there, don't forget to check out our short form Transfer Pricing in the News Podcast. That's the Fiona Show, hot off the press. All of your transfer pricing reg changes and headlines from around the world in under 10 minutes. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Until we all meet again, stay safe, wear a mask, and we're going to catch you next week. Next week.